With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This one is gone! It hits the foul pole! Howie Kendrick has done it again! And here it comes. Swag and a miss! Swag and a miss! And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books! Hi everybody, I'm Charlie Slows. And I'm Dave Jagler. And welcome to Curly W Live from the Booth. Every episode, we'll be talking about some of the greatest games in Nationals history. And we want to take questions from you, the fans. You can reach us in a variety of ways. If you have questions to send along to us, you can send them via email to nationalsradio at nationals.com, or you can hit us up via direct message on Twitter at, at NatsRadio, and we'll answer questions at the end of each episode. And remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Immediately go to nationals.com slash podcast to find us. And Every episode of Curly W Live from the Booth presented by Geico. Geico makes it so easy to switch and save on car and homeowner's insurance. Visit geico.com and see how much you could save. Geico, proud partner of the Washington Nationals. Well, when last we left you, we were talking, Dave, about the Nationals' tremendous come-from-behind win again in Game 5 of the National League Division Series. The Howie Kendrick Grand Slam of the 10th inning. After the back-to-back home runs by Anthony Rendon and Juan Soto of Clayton Kershaw in the eighth inning, it tied the game. The Kendrick slam put the Nationals in front 7-3 to three and catapulted them into the National League Championship Series. And uh, it was quite a celebration in Los Angeles after that game at the hotel. And we knew sometime the next day we would be heading to St. Louis. Yeah, you know, it's funny when you look back on that, and I, one thing that I remember about the celebration at the hotel is the entire time that we were at the team hotel, they had a, a private room set aside for the team and the traveling party, and we were in there, and there was there was food and drink and the like, and there was an outside patio area, and on the outside patio area sitting there was Walker Bueller with his family, I, I, and he sat there basically the whole night while the Nationals were celebrating inside the room watching this after pitching a tremendous game five, but ultimately with his team coming up short, he would later come in the room uh, on, on the way up to his room. He was staying at the, that hotel in the postseason. And I remember he sought out Brian Dozier, his former teammate with the Dodgers and, and several other Nats came up and, and had a, a pretty uh, interesting and private moment with him. Uh, but as we looked at that night kind of stretched uh, well into the night and the nationals flew on the off day to St. Louis. And, you know, it's funny as, as we do these recaps, I mean, so many people remember the great moment of the wild card game and the great series with the Dodgers and winning four games in Houston. It's almost like the NLCS really gets gets short shift. Like no one no one really remembers it. It all happened so quick. And just when you think back on the on that period of time, we traveled from Washington to L.A., L.A. to Washington and Washington to L.A. We flew cross country three times in that series. And that five game series felt like it took forever. The NLCS was over (laughs) seemingly in an instant, which is a good thing because the Nationals won the series very quickly. And you wondered again, uh, going to St. Louis, a little bit of a shorter flight, only halfway across the country. And you kind of felt like they could fly without a plane after the way they won that game five in Los Angeles. You thought about what happened after winning the wild card game. 
and a little bit of a maybe emotional, physical letdown fatigue in game one of the NLDS against the Dodgers. That was not seemingly the case at all for game one on Friday night, October the 11th in St. Louis. It is new territory for a Washington Nationals franchise about to play for the first time ever in Game 1 of the National League Championship Series from Bush Stadium in St. Louis. It's the Washington Nationals and the St. Louis Cardinals. Well, the key is, as we found out uh, after the fact, the Nationals, uh, they had a tremendous group of advanced scouts all throughout the postseason uh, looking at potential opponents. And the Nationals brass had a pretty good idea as to how they wanted to attack the St. Louis Cardinals hitters and the Cardinals had come off that great game five win in Atlanta when they scored 10 runs in the first inning and basically blew the doors off the Braves and were comfortably on into the NLCS and of course then the Nationals who was going to pitch game one we know Strasburg had pitched in game five Scherzer in game four and Patrick Corbin had pitched in relief both in games three and game five of the of the LDS so it it fell on Anibal Sanchez yep and uh, Sanchez you know when you talk to the people who watched him over the years he's a guy that tended to rely on his game plan of what he does best and not necessarily uh, a game plan of how to attack hitters because he's usually all about location and changing speeds and I think when he has a feel for his repertoire in the game he works off the feel of his pitches and then how hitters are reacting to them but they had and you talk to that group of scouts (laughs) I mean the Nats had an all-star team that were there in Atlanta when the Cardinals beat the Braves you mentioned and they all went back did their report so they could get together to watch the end of game five uh, in their hotel bar which I was told they had keep open for them to watch the end of game five uh, between the Nats and the Dodgers. But Sanchez very much followed a game plan that really worked. And uh, that was really pitching the Cardinals inside. And and really, the way they were very effective against Marcelo Zuna was throwing him breaking ball after breaking ball and gave him fits. Sanchez to the belt. Here's the 1-0. Swinging a high pop-up left side. I think Rendon's got a play. He's in foul ground. He's under it waiting. And Sanchez is out of trouble on the foul pop-off the out of Ozuna. Well, Sanchez, can he can be a comfortable at bat because he's not a hard thrower, but you can be a comfortable 0 for 3 or 0 for 4. And he had the changeup working, as you mentioned, coupled with the inside fastball. And so he had a no-hitter going through uh, several innings of that game. And all of a sudden, you're, you're thinking, wow, could, could we see something pretty special here going on? As the innings kept going along, the only base runners were on a walk in the fourth inning and a couple of hit batters offensively, I think the Nationals caught a huge break. We talk about managerial mistakes on the other side. In the second inning, Jan Gomes is up at the plate. Gomes hit 223 in the regular season. And Cardinals manager Mike Schilt got greedy. I remember saying this on the broadcast at the time. You know, in the middle of May, if the pitcher's in the on-deck circle, you might go after the number eight hitter, trying to steal that out and have the pitcher lead off the next inning. But in a postseason game, where every run could mean the difference between a win and a loss, they chose to pitch to Jan Gomes in that spot. And as would be the case throughout the postseason, somebody else stepped up to be the hero. And Gomes got the big hit, driving in Howie Kendrick, who would let off that inning with a double. Outfield straight away, the pitch. Swinging a belt to left center field in the gap. This is way back to the warning track, to the wall, and one hop off the fence. Rounding third is Kendrick. He'll score as Jan Gomes pulls into second base with a two-out double in the gap. So that two-out double gave Sanchez the one and only run that, that he would need for cushion. And again, it was probably a situation where Schilt should have walked Gomes and let Sanchez be the third out. Nationals got a break from the other side and took advantage of it.
I was stunned by that, that they, you know, the way Sanchez handles the bat compared to Gomes, that's a no-brainer in that situation. But it proved to be a big one. The Nationals get a run there. They tacked on a run uh, in the seventh inning on a base hit by Kendrick, who ultimately would win uh, the NLCS MVP. The 1-0. Swing a line drive, center field, base hit, Howie Kendrick. Eaton will score, 2-0 Nationals. But, of course, the big story, which we found out before the game, was Daniel Hudson was not in the bullpen. Uh, this was the day where, where Hudson was back in Arizona and was actually on the, the, the first ever that we can remember postseason uh, paternity list. And so the Nationals didn't have the guy who had been closing games for them down the stretch. And so basically, you figure Sanchez is normally a five or a six-inning pitcher. How is Davey Martinez going to get the ball to Doolittle uh, potentially for a save. Well, Sanchez got the ball all the way to Doolittle, taking the no-hit bid into the eighth inning. Zimmerman makes a diving catch in that inning. Here's a swing and a line drive. Caught by a diving Ryan Zimmerman to his right. What a play by Zimmerman leaving his feet. A headlong diving back hitted catch. He was saying, man, could he maybe take this all the way and join uh, Don Larson and Roy Halladay, the only postseason no-hitter slash perfect games in, in history. Unfortunately, it was broken up by Jose Martinez with a two-out single, but seven and two-thirds innings, he handed the ball right off to Doolittle to get the last four outs. Doolittle sets. Now the kick in the 2-2 pitch. He struck him out at a National League Championship Series Game 1. Curly W is in the books. And a ball as you're, as you're going along, you, you've got the, the innings going along. You know, in a regular season start, if you have a no-hitter, that uh, you may be some superstitions. I'm sure you were not focused on that, but did you realize as it was going on you would not allow to hit? Yes, uh, later in the game. I don't, I don't try to pay attention when it's, uh, it's early, but after the sixth inning, uh, especially when I know what kind of hitters are going to face after that, and I say it's a, it's a possibility that, uh, that I can throw a no-hitter, but uh, at the end, I don't want to think too much about that. It's because the score is so close. I already just keep everything focused and uh, throw a strike, get the guys out, instead of just thinking of what I'm going to do later in the game. I think every pitch right, uh, right now is really important, and that's, that's what I did today. Yeah, he was amazing, and you're right. Normally, he gets up around 75 pitches, 80 pitches. That's usually when you're looking to go to the bullpen, but if you look at the way the Nationals approached the pitching in the postseason, their starting pitchers were given a longer leash almost every time out if they were effective, and they were. Yeah. The, the other thing, and, and that's, a, that's a great point, mate. The other thing about this game, we found out about this in spring training of this year. The story of this game to me, remember uh, Kurt Suzuki in Game 5, in the division series got, got nicked up and had to come out of the game. And Jan Gomes finished game five behind the plate. Unbeknownst to us, Kurt Suzuki was not available to play at all in game one of the national league championship series, but the nationals didn't want to put uh, Suzuki off the roster because if he, if they had put another catcher on Suzuki would have been off the roster for the entire NLCS. So the nationals had one catcher for game one, Brian Dozier, who had been the starting second baseman for four and a half months prior to game one, spent his entire pregame routine in the batting cage practicing blocking baseballs with the bullpen coach, Henry Blanco, because he was the emergency catcher. And if anything, any sort of injury happened to Jan Gomes, Brian Dozier was going to be the catcher. If that doesn't say an amazing amount about what this team was all about, that here's your former starting second baseman who lost his job, is he going to sulk about that? No, he's, he's going to say, I can do, I'm going to do whatever I can to help the team where I can help. And, and to me, that, that little story about Dozier, which we didn't find out about until this spring training, when Davey Martinez was asked about an emergency catcher for the 2020 season, and he told the story about Dozier being his emergency catcher for this one game, 
I mean, that, that, to, that floored me. That, uh, that here, here's Dozier's character saying, you know, I, I'm not going to sulk that I lost my job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I have to do to help my team. Fortunately, Gomes made it through that game unscathed, and we never knew that Dozier was, was that close to being the catcher in the National League Championship Series. Well, you think about what we'd heard about Dozier from Dave Roberts, the Dodgers manager. They traded for him at the trade deadline the year before, uh, and he was playing hurt much of the year in Minnesota with a bone bruise in his knee, and he, he wasn't effective with the Dodgers, but they loved him as a teammate even for a couple of months down the stretch that year with the Dodgers. So uh, in some ways, not surprising, but what happened to him was amazing. Not only does he lose his job to his Drupal Cabrero, who drives in 40 runs in 38 games after joining the team, but then as hot as Howie Kendrick was in the postseason, if Cabrera wasn't going to play second, Kendrick was moving to second and Zimmerman was playing first and Cabrera wasn't playing and Dozier became the number three option at second yeah, base. Yeah, he had very limited playing time. He had one start in the whole postseason, but it's about the name on the front of the jersey and not on the back. And the Nationals uh, fortunately didn't need Dozier in game one. They had Sanchez, and that's all they needed to to take the early lead in the series. As you mentioned, Sean Doolittle gets the final out of the eighth, and then a, a quick one, two, three ninth with a strikeout of Marcelo Zuna, and the Nationals were on their way with a game one win. And the good thing is you, you, had, uh, you had Scherzer in game two, and this would be kind of a parallel in history. When Scherzer and Sanchez were teammates in 2013 in the NLCS, they had matching lengthy no-hit bids in the first two games of that series against the Red Sox. Wouldn't you know, they would just uh, reprise history and have Max Scherzer with a lengthy no-hit bid in game two. And the story of game two was really the conditions. Here in a cool mid-October afternoon of the Midwest, it's Game 2 of the National League Championship Series. A matchup of two pitchers who've been doing this for a long time. Max Scherzer goes for the Nationals. Adam Wainwright for the Cardinals. It was it was very similar to what we saw in Game 1 of the 2012 NLDS. If you remember, a game started by Adam Wainwright, and he started this game. The shadows made it such that the hitters couldn't see. And Wainwright's got that wicked curveball. He was outstanding. But you give Max Scherzer any little edge like the shadows, and he was able to trump Wainwright. But this was a good old-fashioned pitcher's duel and another classic ball game. Scherzer over the head into the wind of the pitch. Fastball, strike three called, and the inning is over. The grunt and the 97-mile-an-hour heater locks up the rookie Edmund. Here comes Max. And a swing and a miss. He blew him away with a fastball. That strikeout number 10. You know, Scherzer going through those first six innings, just a couple of base runners with walks before he gives up that leadoff single in the seventh inning to Paul Goldschmidt. Strikes out Marzillo Zuna for his 11th strikeout of the game, and then he gets Molina on a 6-4-3 double play to end his day. Yep, and, and there wasn't much offense. Michael Taylor somehow uh, saw a pitch, or maybe didn't, but the ball hit his bat, and he hit a fly ball just over the fence in the third inning. Wainwright rocks into the windup and fires. And a swing and a high drive to left field. Well hit. Ozuna drifting back toward the warning track, to the wall, looking up, and there it goes! Michael Taylor drops one into the left field seats for his third career postseason home run. And a guy who had a lot of clutch hits all the way through the postseason, the big insurance tally was Eaton with a two-run double in the eighth inning. Wayne right to the belt, the payoff pitch to Eaton, breaking ball, pulled on the ground, fair! A fair ball past the diving first baseman and down the right field line. So that gave the Nationals a little bit of cushion because the one mistake they would make defensively, Turner had a misread on a ball in the eighth inning. Little trying to finish off the inning. Has the sign again from Suzuki. Checks DeYoung, the runner at first. Here's the pitch. Swing and a line drive center field. Taylor in now back, and he missed the ball. It goes over his head and all the way to the fence. Rounding third and coming home is DeYoung. And into second is Martinez. 
gets over his head for a double. That's how the Cardinals got their only run of the series in St. Louis. The Nationals carried a 3-1 to one lead into the ninth inning, and they would use a starting pitcher and a new dad to close it out. Hudson to the belt, and the pitch. Swing, and it's popped up. Here comes Zimmerman from first into foul ground. He has a play, and Ryan Zimmerman makes the catch. And a National League Championship Series, Game 2, Curly W is in the books. Yep, you had Sean Doolittle with the eighth inning, and then Patrick Corbin, he gets the first out of the ninth, and then the reemergence of Daniel Hudson. Paul Goldschmidt flies to left, and then he faces Marcelo Zuna and gets him on one pitch to end the game. I mean, he was exhausted. He had flown cross-country after not getting much sleep with the, the birth of his baby daughter, but uh, he was able to sleep on the flight to Washington because the Nationals had a 2-0 lead quickly, stealing the first two games in St. Louis. And when you talk about quick, Corbin threw two pitches to get an out. Daniel Hudson threw five pitches to get two outs with the foul pop to first baseman Ryan Zimmerman to end the game. So while he was back and exhausted, he wasn't overworked, only throwing five pitches. And then, uh, of course, you you have a day off for travel after that to recover. Yeah, it's it's funny how the momentum in baseball is. I mean, the Cardinals had that 10-run first inning in game five in their division series, but then they come to the NLCS and... I mean, they, they normally have a pretty good offensive club. I mean, you know, the Cardinals have been tough on the Nationals over the years in the regular season, but to score one run in two games in, in postseason play shows you just how thoroughly dominant the Nationals pitching was, and they were going to get dominated again when the series shifted to Washington. And that would be on Monday, October the 14th, Game 3, the first ever National League Championship game or Championship Series game at Nationals Park. 43,675 awaiting the Nats, a sellout crowd, standing room only, and an electric atmosphere with Steven Strasburg getting the start. In front of a capacity crowd, sold out Nationals Park in Washington, D.C. for the first ever home game for the National League Championship Series. Yep, great pitching matchup for Strasburg for the Nationals and Jack Flaherty, who had been uh, arguably the best pitcher statistically in the National League in the second half of the season. So you had the the big-time pitching matchup. Uh, Strasburg came out on fire, picked up a couple of strikeouts in the first inning, pitched around a leadoff double in the second inning. And finally, it was the Nationals getting some clutch hits in the third inning. Anthony Rendon had a hit after Eaton gave him the lead. And Howie Kendrick really put his stamp on the series. The reason he was the NLCS MVP was his performance in game three. He had a three for four game with three doubles. And the first of the three doubles doubled the Nationals lead in the third inning. Howie Kendrick has a chance to double the lead with a hit. The 2-1. Swing a line drive right center field. That's a base hit. It's up the gap. Yep, so a four-run inning for the Nationals with Kendrick's two-run double after Rendon's double and Eaton's RBI single. And uh, a bounce-back inning for Flaherty the fourth inning, but that would be the end of his day. Four runs, five hits on four innings, 79 pitches, and the Cardinals couldn't wait any longer in the fifth inning. Uh, at that point, they're down 4 nothing. Matt Carpenter, who was out of the lineup for that game, they went with Jose Martinez at right and moved Tommy Edmond to third. Carpenter was the pinch hitter in the fifth inning with a man on base and one out. Strasburg struck him out looking. Yeah, I mean, Strasburg was just piling up the Ks. I mean, this was vintage Strasburg, 12 strikeouts in seven innings, similar to what he did in that start at Wrigley Field in 2017 when he punched out a dozen. But he really na- never gave the Cardinals any, any breathing room, any chance offense. Uh, a couple of hits.
hits against him in the fourth inning. He shut that rally down. Nationals tacked on against the Cardinal bullpen. Another RBI hit for Kendrick. Yes, the Nationals scored two in the fifth, and they added one. The Cardinals finally broke through, though, against Strasburg a bit in the seventh inning. There was an unearned run on a Soto error in that inning. They had a couple of men on base, but all Strasburg did was finish his outing with a flourish. He picked up strikeouts 10, 11, and 12 in that seventh inning. Here's the 0-2. Swing and a miss. He got him on a changeup. Steven Strasburg fans a dozen St. Louis Cardinals over seven innings. 117 pitches as he continued to fortify his postseason legend. Yeah, unbelievable. 84 strikes out of the 117 and the strikeout of Dexter Fowler swinging at a changeup that was just devastating, sending that game to the seventh inning stretch. And at that point, the Nationals were up seven to one and they would add another run in the bottom of the seventh inning. Again, uh, Howie Kendrick doubles and Ryan Zimmerman with his second RBI hit of the game singles him home. 3-1 to Zimmerman. Swing a line drive, pass the diving, Edmund a base hit to left field. Kendrick going home. Ozuna will throw it towards second. And the Nationals have that run back. It's 8-1 to one as Zimmerman drives in his second run of the night. And the Nationals' lead is back to 7. And then you have uh, Rodney and Rainey finish it off. Each gets two more strikeouts. The Nationals set their own postseason record with 16 strikeouts as a team in one game. And again, you look at now through three games, that, that uh, decent Cardinal offense has been held to two runs. And you're getting to the point where the Nationals can, can sense it Davey Martinez's motto and mantra is, let's go 1-0 today. But you go to the park the next day on the 15th, knowing that going 1-0 today means you're going to the World Series. And an even bigger crowd, 43,976 packed into Nationals Park. Electric atmosphere, and all Patrick Corbin does is come out of the gate and strike out the side at the top of the first inning. One ball, two strikes. Corbin winds, kicks to the Hey, struck him out with a fastball away. And Patrick Corbin blows away. That was that was electric, and it set the table for what happened in the bottom of the first inning. Is in a span of just 15 pitches, Dakota Hudson would have a very very short night of work. Swing and a fly ball left field toward the line. Ozuna on the run, can't get there. Drops in for a base hit. Scoring is Robles behind him, coming in from second is Gomes on a single to left. Seven runs home here in the bottom of the first inning. They'll all be charged to the starter, Dakota Hudson. A Turner single. An Eaton double, a sack fly for Rendon. Soto a double to left to drive it a run. They intentionally walk Kendrick at that point. Zimmerman hits into a fielder's choice, and then Robles singles to right. And <laughs> that's when the car that's when the Cardinals defensively fell apart. Wong dropped that throw on the Zimmerman ground ball, and Jose Martinez misplayed the pop-up. He and Wong got confused as to who's going to catch it. Swing and a pop-up. Shallow right toward the line. Out goes Goldschmidt and Wong in the right field of Martinez coming in. Martinez just let it drop in between them. Yeah, it was interesting. Right before that pitch, I was resetting the Cardinal defense in their outfield and saying Azuna doesn't throw like he used to. Used to be, an, you know, very, very good outfielder. Uh, you know, then you had uh, a Bader in center field starting that game. Good range. And then Martinez, you don't know what you're going to get from him in the outfield. He was He's in the lineup to swing the bat. And there it, it reared his head on the very next pitch. Yeah, they, they were struggling so much offensively. Mike Schilt switched his lineup to try to get more offense because they had scored two runs in three games. And all of a sudden, 
that the ball finds you, the baseball gods find you, and Martinez with a misplay that lets the inning unravel more for St. Louis. Yeah, it uh, turns out that uh, Robles gets a single and Gomes with a double to drive in two in the end of the day for Dakota Hudson. Corbin lays down a sacrifice bunt against the new pitcher, Adam Wainwright, in relief for the Cardinals. And then the very next pitch, Trey Turner up for a second time in the inning. Yeah, and his two-run single puts a sixth point and the extra point through the uprights, a seven-run first inning, kind of turning the page on what the Cardinals did to Atlanta in that decisive game five. But a seven-run inning and Hudson out after 15 pitches. And it set the the stage really for a celebration at Nationals Park. But, you know, as as you sit there, Charlie, and it's seven to nothing in the first inning, this series was was very low stress level because the Nationals were in control of it the entire series. But it seemed like the last eight innings of this game were in slow motion because you start counting the outs. You're up by seven runs, 24 outs to go. And it seemed like the outs were going in the wrong direction. It just took forever to, to close out this game. Yeah, because the, the pitches over each inning seemed to mount for Corbin. A 10-pitch, one, two, three, second, he was good. 20 in the third. He gives up a solo home run to Molina in the fourth with a 12-pitch inning. And then the game screeches to a halt when he had a 39-pitch fifth inning. Uh, involved a couple of walks and eventually uh, a big two-run double for Jose Martinez. And the Cardinals scored three runs in that inning. And now suddenly it was 7-4 after four and a half innings. And nobody wanted to think about the Cardinals in game five in 2020. 12, but that kind of creeped into your head a little bit. Only difference was this was not a do or die game for the yeah. Nets. But it just it just seemed like the outs weren't coming. And it, you know, it's funny. Uh, this is this year is the 40th anniversary of the Olympic hockey team winning the gold medal in 1980 in Lake Placid. And I, you, you watch those shows, and after the U.S. team scored the goal to go ahead of the Soviet Union. In the, in the semifinal game, Al Michaels and all the players tell the story. It seemed like, you know, there were maybe eight minutes to go because the clock was going backwards. It's like there, more time was being added to the clock. And it just seemed like to me in this game, it's like 12 outs, 11 outs, 10. No, now we need 12. It just seemed like the outs wouldn't get down to zero. Uh, but fortunately, the Nationals were able to stave off a big rally in the eighth inning. Davey Martinez, again, managed aggressively up three games to none. He went to Doolittle in the seventh inning, and he was going to close this game with Doolittle and Hudson, some combination, getting the final nine outs of this game. Doolittle got the first five, but then he ran into trouble. Hudson came in, hit a batter and walked a batter, and the Cardinals actually had the tying run on base in the eighth inning with Matt Carpenter up as a pinch hitter for Harrison Bader. Two balls and two strikes. Again, the base is loaded in two outs. Seven, four nats, top of the eighth, game four. The kick and the pitch. Swinging a ground ball right side. Dozier to knee bobbles it. Picks it up. Throws to Zimmerman on the side. Retired. Dozier stayed down on it. The ball skipped, but he blocked it. And Hudson is out of the inning. And Carpenter hits it to the right side. Nationals are able to make the play to get out of the inning. And then from there, Hudson came back with a 1-2-3 ninth inning to close it out. Let's not forget Tanner Rainey was a lift because after Corbin's 39-pitch fifth inning, and it's 7-4, to four, he helped get you to Doodle and Hudson to finish by having a, a, a clean 1-2-3 top of the sixth inning with the help of a, a fine play by Turner with a, with a uh, dive to his left to catch a line drive. Yeah, I mean, obviously not not much was uh, needed from the bullpen outside of the starters and Doolittle and Hudson, but Rainey had some good moments in the postseason, and Hudson always seemed to be the man on the mound to try to close it out, and in this case, he got a chance to throw his glove after the fly ball off the bat of Edmund, and uh, the Nationals, for the first time in their franchise history, headed to the Fall Classic. 
Hudson has the sign now from Gomes coming set. Looks like they want to go in. Here's the kick now. The pitch, fastball, is hit in the air to left center field. Robles calling for it. He's under it, waiting, and he makes the catch. He makes the catch. Bang! Zoom down the fireworks. The National League Championship winning Curly W is in the box. Victor Robles, seemingly along with Michael Taylor, they were the last out guys. The center fielders make the catch, and uh, Daniel Hudson and the Nationals celebrate the first time that we would have a World Series in the nation's capital since 1933. And that's our look back at the 2019 National League Championship Series with the Nationals sweeping the Cardinals four games to none. And this was uh, presented by GEICO. Makes it so easy to switch and save on car and homeowner's insurance. Visit GEICO.com and see how much you could save. GEICO, proud partner of the Washington Nationals. Thank you for listening to the Curly W Live podcast. We appreciate your support. As you may know, we are going to be bringing more voices out of the podcast this year. In addition to hearing from us, we will also be sharing fan stories in our From the Stands podcast series. With that in mind, we want to let you know that the Nationals are asking fans to share audio recordings of their favorite 2019 postseason memories to be featured on the inaugural Curly W Live from the Stands podcast. To submit your memory, visit Curly W Live, the official blog of the Nationals at curlyw.mlbblogs.com and look for the post entitled Calling All Nats Fans. Submit your postseason memories now. Charlie, we've got to open up the mailbag. Yep, we get our emails at nationalsradio at nationals.com or you can direct message them to us on Twitter. That's at Nats Radio on Twitter. So this was an interesting one. This came to us uh, on Twitter from Jay Flanland. Do you guys have any favorite one-year Nats like Soriano, Dozier, who we talked about, Aaron Boone, Mark DeRosa, and maybe some more? We like all of those guys, Dave, for, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, it's you know you can highlight Boone and DeRosa. The thing that you knew about those guys when they were on the team is that they were announcers in the making. I'll never forget. I was walking in the clubhouse. Uh, I walked by Aaron Boone one day and he goes, uh, he goes, Hey, Shull. He's talking to me I'm like, Hey, Shull. He goes, yeah. Cause you sound like Dan Shulman, the, the ESPN broadcaster. Mm-hmm. So you knew that Aaron Boone <laughs> was listening to our broadcast and he obviously had an opinion of, of what I sounded like. And, and DeRosa was another guy who you could tell knew kind of what we did, who we are, and had an interest in, in what we did. And he had that, uh, he had that speaker the with the microphone attached, the karaoke machine with the microphone attached to it. And he would, uh, he would broadcast on that little speaker when the clubhouse was open. And he would, he would say things about players. He'd say things about us. He'd say things about other media members. He, he was always in the middle of everything. Yeah, and it was hurt a lot that year. So, I mean, part of his job was to keep the team loose. Uh, he was a lot of fun. Uh, he, w- Yeah, you're right. The clubhouse opened. Then he go, now nah, walking into the club, he gave everybody an intro <laughs> with a story. <laughs> but Aaron, you know, I, Aaron Boo, of course, spent a lot of his time growing up as a youngster in Philadelphia when Bob played for the Phillies. And so he grew up listening to Harry Callis call Phillies games. And I remember when he played us – the voicemail message of Harry Callis doing his voicemail intro on his phone. Yeah, you know, Aaron, he's like a three like one fastball to his father, Bob Aaron Boone is out of here. 
That's exactly what it said. Yeah, he was very upset when that didn't transfer to a uh, I know a future phone uh, later on in years. Now we mentioned Dozier. I mean, he he turned out to be a huge part of uh, the national celebrations, dancing to the calm a song after uh, each win and in the clubhouse and in the parade. And of course, and then uh, there's the guy who changed things on the field in the dugout, Gerardo Parra. Yeah, he, he's he's got to be at the top of the list. Now, it's funny, you know, just we're going to let fans in on a little secret. When we're not on the air talking, you know, broadcasting the game, when, when we talk to each other, we're generally talking about baseball. We talk about baseball in the booth before the game. If we go out after the game on the road and, and, and have a drink, we talk about baseball. And our favorite pastime is to manage or general manage the team. And that's no disrespect to the, the current manager and general manager, but we're, we're kind of like George Costanza in Seinfeld. Hey, we can get Bonds and Griffey, and it's not going to cost us too much. <laughs> we have a $500 million payroll, and we can trade for anybody. That's how we general manage the team. Now, who's the one guy? You and I both have said for the last five years, who's the one guy we want on our team? Every time we'd see him play. Gerardo Parra. Gerardo Parra. Every time we'd see Parra on another team. So we should get that guy. He'd be a great fourth outfielder. The guy won a gold glove as a fourth outfielder, pretty much. Yeah, we, we, said, he'd, we said he'd be perfect on the Nationals. We, we wanted Parra on the team for five. But that was as a player. We had no idea what he was going to bring to the clubhouse, just his presence. He could have hit 050. Right. And he would have been perfect in this clubhouse. But, I'll, you know, he joined the Nationals at Dodger Stadium, and he had had a tough start to the year in San Francisco. And, and the second game he played was the night he hit the grand slam to beat the Dodgers in the eighth inning. And I was talking to Dave Roberts around the batting cage before the game. And I, I said, well, what do you think of us getting para? I said, I've always liked him. He said, well, he's going to be he's going to be really good for you. He's perfect for the for the Nationals. And then he goes out and beats the Dodgers that night with a grand slam. And from there, it just took off. Now, when you talk about the greatest one year player as a National, it's a no contest. Nobody had a better one year than Alfonso Soriano in 2006. Yeah, he, he had 40, 40, 20. He had 40 homers, 40 steals and 20 outfield assists playing a position he had never played before. Remember that whole controversy? Well, he was a second baseman, and you know, Jim Bowden said, well, no, you're an outfielder. He went and played left field, and he threw out over 20 runners that year. Right, 40-40 guy. And we didn't think he'd be a one-year national. We didn't think he'd make it through one year. Uh, the nationals were not in contention in 2006, and Soriano was, was going to be a free agent after the year, and just about everybody thought that he would be traded. Everybody, all the so-called experts, thought there's no way you can hold on to him. You have to trade him and get what you could for him. And I remember, you know, we got to the trade deadline, and ba- the whole baseball front office seemingly was on the road with the team, as was the case a lot. A lot of times you got to the trade deadline and everybody thought that Soriano would not be a national the, the day after the trade deadline. They didn't make the deal. He finishes the year. He was the only guy who never complained about the so-called were the home run distances on the wall at RFK correct because he, <laughs> he did him in the upper deck. Yeah, he didn't hit too many cheap home runs. And of course, he played with Nick Johnson with the Yankees. They were teammates there. They were very close. And the one thing you loved about Soriano on a team that was losing and fading and having a tough year, every day he would walk out of the clubhouse into the dugout at RFK Stadium and say, today we win. We win today. He, there was never a sad look on his face. He always had, uh, a, he was a great teammate, great leader, I thought, uh, great emotional guy, and there was nothing fake about him. But the funniest thing I thought he said all year was in September of that year, Davy Lopes was the first base coach. Nick Johnson was one of the slowest guys in baseball. He'd be the first to tell you. But he could steal bases when Davey Lopes was the first base coach. A two-fold story because people would say, Nick, how do you do it? He goes, Davey yells, go, and I run. That's it. <laughs> 
He steals his 10th base of the year. He was double digits at home runs, and Soriano was already 40-40. Comes up to Nick, and we were standing around Nick. He goes, hey, Nick, congratulations. Me 40-40, you 10-10. <laughs> the only time in Nick's career he'd be 10-10. That was classic. Those are some of the great one-year Nats that uh, we really liked for all different reasons. Yeah, that's a that's a great list. You get you know the the uh, Jay Flanland gave us a good list, but you got to have Par on that list. He's probably number one. Well, that's going to do it for episode three of Curly W live from the booth, presented by Geico. Be sure and uh, subscribe to us at nationals.com/slash/podcast or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll talk to you again very soon. <laughs> <laughs>